welcome. Thank you for choosing to worship with us today. I know that sometimes that's, that's a tough choice. You're like, I don't feel like going to church, so I'm glad you showed up. Or maybe you're like, I don't, it's, I'm new to church, and it's kind of risky, and I don't know what to expect. We're glad you came, um, and we're glad that you're here. Thanks to all those who are watching on the live stream as well. My, my encouragement, if you're watching on live stream, is at some point, some point soon, come in person. It's very different. And those who have watched online and then come in person say, wow, it really is different. Because it is. I have a, uh, a Presbyterian missionary friend who uses a word that I had never heard before. And I wanted to share that word with you. The word is presbycostal. Let me just say it again so you get it. The word is presbycostal. The combination of Presbyterian and Pentecostal, right? And so my friend uses this word, um, and he says, you know, this, this is kind of his joke, he says, you know how Presbyterians are, are, are feeling filled by the Spirit and more Pentecostal in their ways is, is when they're in worship and their hands just aren't in their pockets. It's when they leave their pockets and only their thumbs are there, and they start swaying a little. <laughs> fingers start to move. It's like hand raising, but it's just finger waving. So, right, because Presbyterians are notorious for being kind of just stiff and like, what do we do with our bodies? And, um, and, uh, and so, anyways, he, he talks about that. He also calls ties Pharisee rags. He just re- refuses to wear them. But enough about that. Um, what impressed me about this man is that he is a man who is living on mission. He tells virtually everyone he sees about Jesus. He is a man who I think embodies in that way Acts 2, what a Pentecostal church life would look like. And I'm not talking about denominations here today, even though I started with that. We're talking about what happened originally in Acts 2, when Pentecost came, when the Spirit showed up. And so as we read this text at the end of Acts chapter 2, I want you to ask yourself this question. What does my life and our church life look like when we are sent out empowered by the Spirit. Let's see what the text says. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe as many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Spirit of the living God, this is your word. It is true. It is relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. Do the work that you can do. Drive it deep into our hearts. Use it to shape and mold our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you committed? That's something my coaches would ask me a lot. Are you committed? Are you devoted to the team? Are you in? Right? You've got to be all in. Are you in? 
That kind of language, that kind of terminology of commitment and devotion says, yes, I am committed, I am in. The people that were gathered after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection were a little bit distraught, remember? After the crucifixion they were, they were distraught. I mean, here's what crucifixion is meant to do. It's, 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 um, it's assassination that's okay, right? You're going to kill a leader by killing the head of the, head of the, or kill a movement by killing the leader of the group. And so the crucifixion is to kill off Jesus, and the message that is sent is, okay, you all should just go ahead and disband now. And they kind of do. They go into hiding until the resurrection, and then they're renewed, and they're like, wait a second, this is different. This changes everything. But still they were like, but what do we do? They were a relatively small group. And then we saw that in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we saw how at Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes and 3,000 people get converted that day. So we have a group of people who started at 120, are now 3,000. And what do they do? How do they live empowered by the Spirit? They don't live in fear or not controlled by fear. They live boldly. They live empowered lives. Christians who are empowered by the Spirit are devoted to the mission of Jesus. It's clearly what they do. It's clearly what Acts is showing us. But these followers of Jesus, knowing the reality of the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit in their lives, are devoted. They're all in. They're devoted to Jesus. And I want to talk to you about this devotion in three ways today. And what this looks like. The first way is it means that Christians are devoted to spiritual vitality. In verse 42 that we just read, right, it said they devoted themselves. I'm using the very language of Scripture here. They devoted themselves. And it lists a bunch of things. One of those things is teaching. One of them is breaking bread. One's prayer. Those are signs. Those are vital signs of life, right? Vital signs are like you take your pulse, right? What's your blood pressure, your oxygen level, your breathing capacity? Those are all vital signs because they are vital to life. What is happening here is they are devoted to spiritual vitality. They are devoted to life. And where do they find that life? It tells us in the apostles' teaching. What are the apostles teaching? They're teaching them about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. You might say, well, how do we know that? Because they wrote it down. It's called the New Testament. That was what they were teaching. And they were like, this is all about Jesus. They devoted themselves to, if we wanted to boil that down very simply, it wasn't just the apostles' teaching. What they were devoting themselves to was knowing Jesus. They devoted themselves to knowing Jesus. It's interesting to me that um, Christians, if you're new to the church or like you didn't grow up in the church, welcome, first of all. We are glad you're here watching online. There's this word that you'll hear Christians say because it's kind of colloquial. Hey, how are your devotions going? And if you hear that, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's weird to me that we use that word, but, but understandable too. And what people mean by that is, how is your Bible reading going? And they call it a devotion because probably this text, they devoted themselves to Bible reading. Okay? to knowing the apostles' teaching. And so if you ever hear that word devotion, it's because, hey, it's a sign of life that you want to know Jesus and his, his character and his teaching, his heart. Who is this Jesus? 
It's one of the things that our, our community groups and small groups are studying now through the book Gentle and Lowly. Man, what a great book. I, I really encourage you to get into one of those groups, and if you're not, then get the book and read it on your own. Um, it is very good. But not only are they committed to the teaching or devoted to the teaching, they're devoted to the breaking of bread as another sign of spiritual vitality. Most scholars think that this first reference to breaking bread in verse 42 refers to communion or to the Lord's Supper. And then later it says, and they met together in their homes and, and broke bread together and ate is probably not, but I'm not going into all of that right now, but let's just say that it at least refers to the Lord's Supper in some capacity. It means it speaks of the importance of Christ's death and resurrection until he comes again. It's a sacrament that the church celebrates and does because it is vital. Truly, it is. It's a sign of life. Like when we take communion, we really believe, truly believe, that there is a spiritual connection that is alive and happening by faith. Not physical. I'm not saying that the bread and and wine turn into Jesus' body and blood. That's not what we believe. But it is a real connection. It is spiritual and it is powerful. And we do that as a vital sign of life. And then prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer, right? Is another, which is another uh, sign of spiritual vitality. Look, think about this for a second. What is prayer? It's language of talking to God. And again, if you're not used to church and stuff, that just seems weird, like we're just, we're just talking into space. We believe God is real, right? And that he is alive and that he wants to hear our prayers. And so it is talking to God, who we don't see right now, but who has made himself known to us in Jesus who walked the earth and is working in our hearts by the Spirit. Consider this for a moment. When you pray, this is what the Bible is saying. It is saying that you are being given access to your Father in heaven where Christ intercedes on your behalf, who loved you and died for you, right? Okay, And the Spirit... We're told in Romans 8, praise with groans that words cannot express. You have the full presence and power of the Trinity at your disposal. Why would you not pray? Right? You have a father who delights to hear from his children. Yes, come. Talk to me. Tell me what's going on. Ask of me, I delight to give. God doesn't always give us everything we want. He does what is best for us in his wisdom. But that prayer is the language of relationship. And we're talking back and forth, right? Uh, my oldest son, when he was very young, like six years old, he once sat on my lap while I was driving the car in the parking lot. I think it was after church one day. Um, it wasn't even here, and the parking lot was pretty empty, and he was sitting on my lap, and holding the steering wheel and turning a little bit. He was having fun and everything. And he was so proud of himself. We stopped and he jumped out of the car and he ran to his mom and said, Mommy, Mommy, guess what? I drove the car all by myself. He wasn't driving all by himself. His dad had control of the car. When we're praying, what we're saying is we really don't have control of much in life, even when we think we do. There are so many more things going on, and we need to go to our dad and say, Father, help me, because I'm driving, and sometimes I don't know where I'm going. I'm driving, and I feel like I'm going to crash. 
And God says, it's okay, my child, I've got you. Trust me. Right? I mean, that's, that's what parents do. It's what God does for us. When you are about Jesus' mission, you need prayer because you need God, and that's your connection to God in it. I will even go so far as to say this. If you are not praying much, you're not on mission much. How could you be? You'd just be doing whatever you think is right and whatever you think you got the power to do. And Pentecost is all about saying, God's going to do something much greater than you. And prayer is a vital sign saying, look, you can be tied to this. So we need to be devoted to spiritual vitality. That's the first thing. Okay, there's some signs of it there. But the other thing we need to be devoted to as followers of Jesus is devoted to sacrificial generosity. It even mentions in verse 42 that that fourth thing, that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. We often think of fellowship as like, like hospitality, like having a good party, just showing up and hanging out, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's fantastic. And, but that's kind of what we've said this is fellowship. As long as we're, there's people and we're connecting, whether it's hokey football or whatever it is, there's fellowship. But, but this word, I think, maybe is something more than that. And yet that idea of fellowship is, is pretty true across America, right? I mean, even David Brooks, the op-ed columnist for the New York Times and, and author, wrote a book called On Paradise Drive where he talked about suburban life. Notice how he describes this hospitality and fellowship in, in one section of his book. He talks about patio man, patio man and realtor mom. And this is what he says. Patio man envisions a Saturday evening party on his deck with his new grill with steel capable of surviving a nuclear direct assault. His wife, Cindy, the realtor mom, is circulating among his friends, serving drinks, telling parent-teacher conference stories, and generally stirring up the hospitality, while he masterfully wields his extra-wide fish spatula on one hand, with a beer in the other hand, absorbing the aroma of imported hickory chips to the silent admiration of all his friends. The sun is shining, the people are friendly, the children are well-adjusted, This vision of domestic bliss is what Patio Man has been shooting for all his life. And that's how we think about fellowship. And that's not bad. Like, that's fantastic. That's great that people do that. But what Scripture is talking about here with the fellowship, I want to suggest to you something further than that, something broader, bigger, deeper. I want to suggest to you that the fellowship that Scripture is talking about is something more akin to the Lord of the Rings. Right? Maybe you've read that book by Tolkien or you saw the movie whenever it came out more than a decade ago. Um, right? Do you remember in The Lord of the Rings, the traveling companions are at the Council of Elrond and they have the ring and they've got to take it to the fires of Mount Doom and there they are commissioned together and the, and the leader there at the Council of Elrond pronounces them. I now pronounce you the fellowship of the ring. The fellowship of the ring. The fellowship of the ring because what it meant was that their lives were bound together. In good times and in hard times, through adversity, through trials, they were bound together and on mission together. They had to live with a sacrificial generosity toward one another, literally laying down lives for the other as they were on mission together. 
Verses 44 and 45 in the text we read talk about this fellowship. And, and if you remember, it says this. It says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Their fellowship was like, what's mine is yours. I will freely give to you whatever I have and make sure that if you have need, you'll be taken care of. It was generous in that way. It was not communism. It was not socialism. Okay? Not in the forms that we think of. It wasn't meant to be a government political strategy of forced distribution of property in what they were doing to promote equality because what they're doing is voluntary. They're, whatever the Roman Empire is doing, they're saying, this is what we're going to do because we're going to take care of people. And so they decided to do it voluntarily with a very different motive than simple equality. Their motive is our God has been so generous and gracious to us that we have to be generous and gracious to others. And that's what they do. And they provide for people who are in need so that they weren't in need. There's this sacrificial generosity that comes about when you're on mission and when you're following Jesus, when you're devoted to him in that way. There's two dangers, I think, of COVID. There's probably a lot more than two. There's, other than the disease itself, okay? Other than the disease itself, I want to talk to you about two dangers of COVID. Um, and I think both of these dangers have the potential for seriously negative effects on being devoted to sacrificial generosity. COVID tends to evoke fear, and fear makes people withdraw and go into survival mode. And that's understandable. Like it's like the self-protection, right? But the danger, the two dangers are this that I want to mention to you. One is the danger of indifference. Meaning, I don't know, I can't do anything else. I only have to care about me. I have to survive. And that makes you so self-focused that you become indifferent to others and the needs around you. And then you lose that sacrificial generosity. Because now it's become all about you and not about others. And I'm not saying you shouldn't think about you. I'm just saying it's not all about you. The second danger is the danger of isolation. It's easy to think that your absence from church or from other friends doesn't have bad effects. It's easy to think that, um, no, I just have to isolate and do my thing um, because I have to be safe. And there are people that do need to isolate and be very safe because of their different medical conditions, histories, diseases they have. They have to be very careful. But it's easy just to adopt that, right? right? The, the human position is easy just to go, I'm just going to isolate us. I'm just going to, right? And that's, that's not just in, indifferent. It's isolating to, in theory, right, take care of yourself. But that forms you. Okay, here's why it's a danger. Not because protecting yourself is a danger. Here's why it's a danger. Because what you do in life forms you. Your life is shaped by your habits. I mean, that's what your habits do. And if your habit over the course of a year or three months or two years is to isolate, then you're habitually training yourself that it's okay for me to isolate and I don't need others. And you're learning how to survive alone. And that's not healthy. It's not healthy even from a human perspective, right? Even if you, even if you don't like any of the Christianity stuff, we know that humans need interaction. But 
on the level of following Jesus, we're supposed to be devoted to one another. And so our habits have to shape how we do life. One of the things I want to challenge people to do this year, do it safely but, and respectfully, but, but find a way to do it, is to be hospitable, to love your neighbor. I mean, we live in a time where people need to know that they can belong and beloved, be loved. The challenge for all community groups that I'm issuing, that I want everybody to do, and I mentioned this at our meeting this summer, that I want our community groups to have at least quarterly have neighborhood parties that are more than patio man parties, but they might look a lot like it, that's okay, but where you're truly trying to reach your neighbors and love them and say, we're really glad to be neighbors. And, and that might look in different ways. It might be a driveway party, it might be a cookout, it might be lawn book clubs where you bring your lawn, your chair to the, to the person's lawn and you sit there. You may be a garden together. But to have outreach events like that. And I want you to also do it in such a way that you're inviting people who don't know Jesus to be part of that experience. Because then they get to see Christian community and what that looks like and how you love one another. And they get to realize it's okay to drink a beer. And they get to realize, like, you really do care about each other. And those are two things that are really important, right? In verse 47, we're told that God adds daily to their number those who are being saved. They're about doing these things, about the spiritual vitality, about sacrificial generosity, living together in fellowship and community, and God uses that to bring new people into their midst. Rosaria Butterfield was an atheist and lesbian professor um, at a major university. She is now married to a man who is a pastor. That transformation is an amazing story, and it's another story for a different time. But part of that story, part of what is key to that story, is that she was loved by people who were good neighbors, invited their in, her into their home. And in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she says she isn't on Facebook or Instagram. Instead, she uses a different app called Next Door because she wants to be committed to, while she knows lots of people, she wants to be committed to literally loving her neighbor next to her and those on her street. And so she uses this app Next Door and she says this, quote, I check Next Door in the morning to see how I can pray for my neighbors because they can share on there if they want prayer for something. And she's told them she'll pray for them. And then going on, she says, but I also uh, use it to find out how I can help them. A daily dose of walking someone else's dog taking out someone else's garbage and making room for someone else's child at my homeschool table is, a, is good for the soul. And it's also, also good for the business of loving God and loving neighbor. And the article that highlighted this in Christianity Today ends this way and says, for Butterfield, the work of praying for others is joined to the tangible work of lending a neighborly hand. See what I'm saying a minute ago? If you're not praying much, you're probably not on mission much. Because your prayers will shape you. Your prayers will shape you. What you're praying for will lead your heart in that direction. That's what God does with it. Let me go on to my final point here and wrap this up for all of us. So you need to be devoted. Followers of Jesus who are empowered by a spirit-filled life are devoted 
to spiritual vitality, they are devoted to sacrificial generosity, and thirdly, they are devoted to social audacity. What do I mean by that? A public boldness. A willingness to talk about faith in Jesus. I don't mean being a jerk in public. I don't mean running over people in public with your vitriol or speech or anger or whatever it is. I mean a public faith that demonstrates the love of Christ. What's the message that you should be talking about? Well, we, don't, we didn't have time today to look at this. We'll probably look at it a little more in weeks to come. The book of Acts has so many sermons in it. And if you look through all those sermons, you know what they're about? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what they're about. They're about Jesus. I mean, the one that we just, it was in earlier in chapter 2 that we saw a couple weeks ago was Peter preaching at Pentecost, and he uses the Old Testament to tell the Jews that, look, here's your scripture, Jesus fulfills this. This is all about Jesus, is what he says to them. And Peter points that out for them. He's not merely talking about moral values or a set of ethical ideas. He's talking about a person, Jesus. God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God living in the flesh, a living being. And in verse 40, which we didn't read today, but it says this, with many other words, he, that is Peter, warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What I want you to notice is this, with many other words, preaches a sermon, but what Luke is telling us is it wasn't like that was the end of it. He was persistent probably talking to people, encouraging in different ways, going on and explaining things. He was persistent in pleading with people. Not a pain-in-the-butt persistence, but a faithful kind of persistence. So the message is about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. If you're going to be, have a public boldness or a social audacity, make sure the message is about Jesus and who he is. About God his character, his work in the world. But secondly, the question we should ask is, well, to whom? Who do we we take this, this message to? And the short answer is to everyone, right? But I also want you to see, even in this text, well, before, we didn't read it today again, but but I'll put these verses on the screen for you. I want you to see in this text how that means sometimes people you may not think it means. In verses 12 and 13, let's put verse 12 up on the screen if you would for me. Um, when Peter is getting ready to preach and the Spirit has already moved and, and come on tongues of fire on people's head, this is what it says. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does that mean? Now, if I look at this verse 12 here, right here, I, hold, go back to verse 12 for a second. What does this mean? These are people who are very curious, right? They're seeking, they're like, Wow. This is amazing. I need to know more about this. I want to know more about this. And that's why Peter preaches to them, right? And then 3,000 are saved. But go to verse 13. Notice who else is present. Some of them, you guys are idiots. They just made fun of me. You've been drinking too much. Peter says, it's in the morning. They haven't been drinking. Notice the two. There's, there's people who are curious and cynical. People who are seeking Jesus and people who are skeptical of Jesus. And Peter answers both of them. He says, no, they they weren't drinking. It's too early in the morning for that. Let me tell you what it was. And he answers their questions. And of course, then where? 
where do we go with this message? Well, we go, of course, we could say again, we go everywhere. But in verse 46, I do want to bring us back to that and, and show this. It says, every day they continued to meet together where? In the temple courts and broke bread in their homes with glad and sincere hearts. They met in very public places and also in private places. The temple courts, when they talk about meeting in the temple courts as a centralized place, it is the place right outside the temple, not where, not where you're going into like the place where the offering is made, but the outer area where lots of business was transacted in Jerusalem, right? The, the temple mount in front of the temple courts is massive, massive, several football fields, just massive area, acres of space. And that's where people intermixed. It's where um, the governor's house overlooked and stuff, right? And they would go there in that massive gathering space of the day, in that central marketplace, but also the place where, where worship happened, and they would go there to worship. It was centralized where they went. They went to the temple courts. And it tells us they praised God, it says in verse 47. And so they're praising God, probably both in the, in the, in the temple courts and in their homes. It seems to be what the, what the text is indicating. So they gather for public worship. They're not hiding. Remember, their leader was killed which is meant to signal, you guys should stop this nonsense now. Go away. And they don't do that. They're saying, no, our faith is public. But notice it's also decentralized. They do meet in homes, right? They go, now that there's 3,000 of them, like, whoa, what are they going to do? So they meet in homes. They have early community groups, as we call them, right? They're meeting in houses together encouraging one another and praying together, sharing meals together, telling stories of what God is doing. This is why we also want you not to just gather for this, but to be involved in life together outside of the Sunday morning. Sometimes people will say things, I've heard many people say this, say something like, well, I'm a person of faith, but that's kind of a private matter. I want to say this respectfully. You're wrong. It is not a private matter. That is not at all what Scripture says. You can't possibly reconcile that with Jesus who says, come follow me and has a band of followers that everybody knows about. So much so, they're very disturbed and they decide to kill Jesus. It is not a private matter. It's a public matter. Saying, yeah, I'm one of his. Now, it is a personal matter. It really is personal. It touches you in different ways, and it does change your life for sure because Jesus is a person. It is a relationship, but it's a relationship in which it is meant for you to say, I'm devoted, I'm a follower of Jesus. It's public. That's why Jesus says, you don't take your light and hide it under a bushel. You don't do that. The light is meant to shine. It's not just Thomas Rhett that talks about that, right? Jesus talks about that. The Spirit-empowered life is precisely for you to be on mission following Jesus. One of my greatest joys in life has been seeing people transformed by the gospel, seeing people become Christians, seeing addictions broken. I mean, I can think through my life in in all kinds of different ways where I've seen this. I 
I can remember being sitting with a young boy in Nassau in the Bahamas who I just got watched beat with a two-by-four in an orphanage and telling him about Jesus. I can remember being in Haiti and sitting with children there and preaching in the church there and telling them about Jesus. I can remember being in the Dominican Republic and, and people pulling a voodoo necklace off of a kid who went into seizures and convulsions and they prayed and burned the necklace and a seizure stopped. I remember being in Philadelphia, in the inner city of Philadelphia, walking the streets with prostitutes and drug addicts trying to get them help and one of them took her eyeliner and wrote her phone number on my hand so we could try to connect her to people who love Jesus. I count those things as some of the greatest joys in my life. And implanting this church is also one of the greatest joys because it became not just a mission that's, oh, far away, but it's right here in your neighborhood. It's with you. And I've seen dozens of people right here become Christians, and you've seen dozens more become Christians. Let's devote ourselves to what it looks like be empowered by the Spirit. Let's devote ourselves to this kind of living. Let's devote ourselves to spiritual vitality. If I want to simplify that for you, I would say devote yourself to know and love Jesus. Let's devote ourselves to sacrificial generosity. Do you want me to distill that? Love others like Jesus does. Let's devote ourselves to social audacity, a public boldness. If I can distill that, tell somebody about Jesus. If you're going to have a party every three months, then at least tell somebody about Jesus every three months. Maybe every three weeks. I, you know, Why not? It should, be, it should be coming out of your mouth. Are you with me? Will you be devoted? Maybe the better question is, Are you with Jesus? He's kind. He's gentle. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be a people that are Pentecostal in the truest sense of this word in, in that The Spirit is upon us, and because of that, we go out about your mission. Yes, gathering for worship, and yes, loving you and knowing you in the Scriptures, and yes, loving others and being generous, and yes, telling others about you. And God, I I boldly ask that you will give us courage to do that, because it is not easy. And I boldly ask that you will then do the work of changing hearts, bringing people to salvation, that we would see people come to faith. Spirit of the living God, move among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our ushers are going to collect the offering.